Okay, we are on the air live here. The story begins. Chapter 50 of Tanya, page 641. Welcome. We are continuing our discussion about love, loving God. By the way, we're rounding near the end. We are on chapter 50. There are 53 chapters in Tanya, and we're getting very close. The goal today is hopefully to cover the entire chapter. It's not a super long chapter. And today we're going to introduce a new type of love as well as a meditation to help us bring it about. Before we introduce this new love, let's recap some of the various uh, types of love we spoke about. There's different types of love. We spoke about a worldly love. We spoke about a great passionate, pleasurable love, which perhaps only a tzaddik can achieve. We spoke about various meditations to achieve a worldly love. Thinking about how God is our life. We love our life. Remember that? That was one of my favorite meditations. We love our life. We do almost anything to preserve our lives right? Um, the majority of the world hid for 18 months because they love their life, right? It's very natural to love life. So if we love our life and we realize God is the source of our life, right? It's kind of like an algebra equation here. We're going to love God. That was one meditation we mentioned. Another meditation Meditating on how God is like a father figure, apparent to us, not just in the sense of how he takes care of us, which that is true, but even deeper than that, spiritually and perhaps biologically, how do you bio-spiritual, he's our bio-spiritual father, because our soul is part and parcel with him, a piece of him, just like a child is a carbon copy of their parent. We spoke about how God is our, our king. And despite the natural distance between a king and his subjects, God brings us close to him, allows us into his chambers. He takes us out of Egypt. And then we spoke about the final love in chapter 49, how God is willing to employ tzimtzum, hiding himself so that the world can exist, so that we can exist. He's willing to set himself aside so we can exist. And we should reciprocate that love set ourselves aside so he can exist. And today we introduce an even deeper level of love, greater than all of the different types of love we have spoken about. Take a look, please, on page 642. The second bold paragraph. You see it? Okay. But there's another type of love which surpasses all of these levels discussed in chapters 43 to 49, all of which are compared to silver. The higher love from, uh, this higher love from the left side is compared to gold and it's superior to all the levels of love discussed to the same extent that, captivating lust, that, it, that the captivating luster of gold surpasses silver. And this higher gold love is, lo is a love like flaming fire. 
which is from the energy of the heavenly Gaburos, the left side, right? The, the energy we would invest in finding gold uh, would be theoric theoretically with greater intensity than were we to just search for silver because it has a greater value. Similarly, the love we're about to describe has a much greater, um, it's, it's of a much greater content than the previous levels of love that we spoke about. What does the left side mean? So the right side represents chesed, which means the, the divine channel of kindness. The left side represents the divine channel of gevura, which means discipline. Um, in general, that's the difference between God coming to us and us going to God. The divine channel of chesed, of kindness, the right side, represents God inspiring us, like God coming down to us. Us being passionate, coming back to God, that's the left side, that takes discipline, and that's Gavura, that's us going back up to God. That's the difference between the service of the Kohen and the service of the Levi in the temple. Now, everything in the Torah has multiple layers to it, multiple levels to it. On a very literal level, the job of the Kohen was to engage in sacrifices. And the job of the Levi was to sing and to praise, right? They were the choir masters in the temple, the Beit HaMikdash. Everybody knows when you slaughter animals, you need good music in the background. No, okay. <laughs> um, but, but there's a spiritual dynamic here as well. There's, there's a deeper significance to this. The Kohen represents chesed, the divine channel of kindness. Does anybody remember the blessing that the Kohen recites before giving the police, priestly blessings on the holidays? They say a blessing. If you have a sitter nearby, you could look in the sitter. I don't have a sitter handy. John, you have a sitter? Or David? It's the towards the end of the Musaf, of the holiday Musaf which if I remember correctly is 350, page 350, 51, priestly. Yeah, something like that. Um, it yep. says, so he wrote so on. So there, there should be a blessing before that. It's part, it starts with, might be for Yivarechecha, it's Baruch Atah Hashem. Um, right before Yivarechecha? Oh, yeah, 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 I see it. Blessed are you. So should I just read the English? Mm -hmm. yep. Blessed Please are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with the sanctity of Aaron and commanded us to bless his people, Israel, with love. With love, right? The Kohen is commanded to bless the Jewish people with love. Which, um, in fact, according to Halacha, according to Jewish law, if a Kohen holds a grudge, he cannot give those blessings. He's not supposed to go up to the uh, to the bima, to the stage, and he's not supposed to bless because he's holding a grudge. He can't go up. The whole job of a Kohen is to bring down the, from the, is to draw down inspiration from the divine channel of chesed, of kindness, which is synonymous with love. Um, the, the Levi, the Levi, on, on the other hand, is the other way around. The Levi is not drawing down inspiration from God, but actually bringing us closer to God. 
And that's represented by the service of the Levi singing, singing in the temple, right? The Kohen is blessing, the Hebrew word for blessing, bracha. You know what bracha also means? It has another meaning. It means to draw down. The, draw, the job of the Kohen is to give a bracha, is to draw down. The job of the Levi is to sing. What happens when you sing? We all know this from COVID. You project, right? <laughs> Go up. Go upward. Um, the level of love we are discussing here, the other loves represented the love of the Kohen. We're now talking about the love of the Levi, of the Levi, which is from the left side, which is from the divine channel of discipline, which represents us going toward God, which is represented, uh, representative of the singing. I have a question. So, so yes. you have to be a lady if you want to be a cantor in the shul, to want to be a... Um... No, you don't. You don't. You don't. You, can you be a coin if you, and sing and still be... Um... Yeah, 100%, 100%. In the Beit HaMikdash, you would have to stick to those rules. Yeah. In the Holy Temple, you'd have to stick to those rules. So this is all for the Kabbalists keeping score. <laughs> so not anyone can if you got a good voice and you and you want to do that as a career you can do it you don't have to be belong to any you don't have to exactly you don't have to belong to a certain class yeah Correct. And, and, Correct. You can't, and anyone either you could only bless in the temple mm -hmm. but in the but on the outside you can bless people if you're a different um okay good so good good question a anybody has the power to give blessings, but a Kohen has a special, unique power to give blessings in, yeah. in, in the fact that they were commanded to do so by God. Okay, so it's Once job. you're commanded to do something, you have, you have a, a unique ability. Now, actually, we, the, the Ashkenazic tradition is yeah. to do it only four times a year or five times a year on, the, on holidays. On the high holidays. Right. We do it on the high holidays. We do it on, on Sukkot on Shavuos and Passover. The Sephardic tradition is they do it every day. So actually I'm here visiting, I'm in LA here visiting my parents and I've been praying at a Sephardic shul. It's a shul nearby and I, I enjoy going there. It's a, it's, a, it's a cultural experience and I, I like it. They do the priestly blessings every day. It's lovely. Uh, that, that's the Sephardic tradition. The Ashkenazic tradition is to do it only on the holidays, unless you're in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, you do it every day as well. Even the Ashkenazim do it every day. So, so they that's to themselves. Sorry? They brought Jerusalem to themselves. Exactly. There we go. I like that. <laughs> we do them with the morning. We do them by ourselves with the morning Exactly. It's well. It's when there's a minion, it the the chazan will do it. What? But but not necessarily with a Cohen. He would just recite them. Okay, so this is the, the Kabbalistic dynamic of the love we're about to discuss. But let's take a step back for a second. How do we develop this love? We have some idea of how great it is. It's like silver, not just, uh, it's like gold, not just silver. It's from the channel of discipline, which is a greater intensity of com us coming toward God. How do we develop this God? And he provides this love. He provides for us a very brief meditation. But let's take a look at it. It's, it's very short. We could almost miss it. We'll try to ingest it. Take a look on the bottom of 642, please. All the way in the bottom. It's the last line of the page. 
and this higher love comes through contemplating the greatness of the blessed infinite light. 643 on the top, that in his presence, everything is considered zero, literally. Think about that for a moment. And by the way, that should not, if, if that destroys our self-esteem, we're doing it wrong. <laughs> it should destroy the ego. It should not destroy the self-esteem. It should encourage us, encourage our self-esteem. It should humble us, right? You know what they say? Humility means not thinking less of myself, but thinking less about myself. And, and the reason is because there's a greater reality, right? We call this bittle. There's a greater reality that I'm part of. And thinking about this greater reality, which is God. And if he is the creation of any other reality, then what is the inherent value of that reality? It's only inherently valuable because it's divine. Otherwise, it doesn't really have any other value. It's considered a zero. Right? Think, think about going back. We, we've given this analogy in the past, but if you have a hundred dollars, you know, that, that's money. Nobody wants to just lose $100. But if you have a minting printer or minting machine that can mint the money, then the value of those $100 is only what society tells you the value of those $100 are. But to you, there's no inherent value. There's an infinite amount of $100. What is the value of existence? It's only inherently valuable because it's inherently divine. God is its creator. So think about not creation, which we get very lost in creation. We get very distracted by creation. Think about the creator, right? Try to think about that for a moment. Thinking about the creator, we are intimidated by creation on some level or another, whether it be an individual, a celebrity, the IRS, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just naming anything, COVID, whatever it is, anything. We are intimidated by creation. Um, most of our worries, our stresses are something that is created by God. So take a step back and think about the creator and what value does that creation have to intimidate us? What ability does it have to intimidate us if it's just a product of the creator? So who should we really revere? The creator, right? I, I, I read a, a beautiful analogy, a great analogy for this. Imagine there was a king in fact let me actually before we give the analogy let he actually refers to god as the king figure in this in this in, in this um meditation take a look again on 643 we'll continue reading the second line of that paragraph first paragraph then your soul will ignite and become a flame for the glorious beauty of his greatness and to gaze at the glory of the king when we focus on the creator we become inspired and we get to look at the glory of the king with a love like a flaming fire and intense flames that ascend upwards to detach themselves from the wicks of the lumber with the lumber which they are grasped. We become on fire 
So here's the analogy. You have a king. And the king has an entire kingdom. An entire palace. And most people, I mean, th think about just by the way, it's, it's hard to use the king analogy in our day and age because we don't really have kings. Unless you go to like Belgium or something, I don't know. We don't really have kings. We have, we, we have, a, we have a, um, a democratic, a, a democracy. You know, we have, and we have a government. So it's a little bit different, but think about it this way. Most people have not seen the president of the United States, any president of the United States, except for John, right? All right. Except for John, I know I've never seen a president of the United States, any president. Most people, more people have been to the White House than who have seen the president. But again, most people likely have not been to the White House either. Now, go back to the ages where there were kings and these kings were mighty, these kings were powerful. Most people have not actually seen the king let alone had a conversation with them. Most people have never even been to the king's palace. So imagine for a moment, you're not invited to see the king, but you are invited to the king's palace. You're invited to take a tour of the king's palace, right? Think about this for a moment. The king says, sends out a notice, here, here, right? You are all invited to take a tour of the palace. You have one hour to visit the magnificent building, to, to examine the various treasures and antiques that the king perhaps have captured, the various artwork. There's a lot going on in this palace. And you get some idea of how magnificent this king must be because you get to experience his palace. You only have an hour. And the hour's up. And you didn't see, you only saw a fraction of the palace. You only saw a fraction of the glory. And then you say, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I spent so much time here, I barely saw anything. And I didn't even get to meet the king himself. Right? We're, and, and we're so... Plug that back into our own lives. We're so focused on the palace of God. Whether that be the world he has created, whether that be the heavens, whether that be whatever it might be. And it's, wait a minute, let's take a step back and forget about the king's treasure, the things that God created. And let's try to focus for a moment on the creator. And when we make that important distinction, even heaven, by the way, the greatest of heavens, the greatest of experiences, uh, spiritual experiences are creations of God. It's not God. When we make that compartmentalization, that distinction, the reaction is supposed to be inspiration. We should be on fire. When we find God, we should be inspired. When we find God, by the way, meaning not just when we find inspiration, when we find the God we have painted in our, in our own minds, but when we truly find God, when we could truly, to the best of our limited ability, appreciate 
his greatness beyond what he has created, beyond the, uh, the frame of references that we create artificially. I go, whoa, this is a seriously spiritual experience. Okay, before we move on, any questions, thoughts, comments? What What is the blessed infinite light? What does that exactly refer to? Is that the essence of God or is it, it's, is it really light or is it not really light? It's, a, it's describing something else. It's, it's not light in the literal sense. Um, the light is a metaphor. I would, so here's what I would do when you, when you read this. Replace the word light with experience. An infinite experience of God. Does that make sense? Because that, that's essentially what light is. It's not the bulb, it's the experience of the bulb, right? So that, that would be, I think that's the most straightforward way to, to describe it. Um, we use light because it brings clarity. That's the, so we use that analogy. Um, other times we use the, in Kabbalistic lingo, we use the analogy of not light, but actually a flow of water, some sort of divine flow. And there's, there's, there's significant differences between the two. Where does, how is this, what is the psychological or the, the soulcology of the, the soulcology of this? How is this activated? Okay, take a look at the next bold paragraph. It's the middle of the page. So it's, it's a one liner or two liner, 643, the middle of the page. This emotion comes through an intensification of elemental fire in the godly soul. Reflecting back on chapter one, we mentioned that there are four elements of the soul. There is water, fire, wind, and earth. And these elements, these spiritual elements, actually have a lot to do with our temperament, our psychological temperament. And these four elements exist within the divine soul. They exist as well within the animal soul. So for example, the element of water in the divine, in the animal soul represents lust because that's the source of all, um, I mean, pleasurable. Within the divine soul, it's going to represent wisdom, intellect, which is calm like water, right? Um, fire in the animal soul. What would fire in the animal soul represent? Can anybody guess? What does anybody remember from chapter one? If you had to guess, what would fire represent in the animal soul? Anger. Anger. Good. What would fire represent in the divine soul? Energy. Energy, right? Passion. Love. So this love is activated by the spiritual element of fire that's in the divine soul. 
And what this leads to is a thirst, a thirst for God. Take a look at the next bold paragraph, please. And through this fiery love, you come to thirst for God, not only a feeling of distance from God, out of this feeling of distance imposed by the sins of the animal soul, but simply because God feels distant even to the divine soul. This inspires us to want to become closer as the verse states, this is a quote from Psalms, my divine soul naturally thirsts for you. And you know what happens afterwards? Then you progress to a state of love sickness, as described in King Solomon's Song of Songs, where you can't get God, God off your mind. Where we become very weird. And, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> and, <laughs> and your distance from him makes you feel sick. Maimonides discusses this type of sick love. Remember that, David? You remember that one? The sick love, right? And then to a state of actual soul languish where your soul desires to depart from the body. Now, this is obviously not a holy thing necessarily. It's a spiritual thing. It's not necessarily a holy thing. And we'll talk about that soon. So we have the meditation, which we've provided on the top of 643. That will activate the fire in the soul that will create thirst, that will create a sick love, that will create this longing to connect to God, even if it's at the expense of our own physical comfort. Okay, I, I have a question, and I don't yeah. know if I'm missing the point, but like the whole the whole time, this whole chapter is about you nothing without being part of this big, um, the, the, being part of something that's so valuable and being lust, lusting for this thing that's that is Hashem. So you're lusting, everybody needs to be part of it. So the whole time, this every single part is like you, 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 you beetle until you become part of getting to the godliness and the light and bringing everything together. So as a one person, you're not, but as a group and a team, you can get there. I mean, this is, I don't know if it's like, I'm missing the point of the whole, <laughs> but but it's like looking after the other souls and looking after the other people to get the light. Yeah, it, you're right. It comes hand in hand. It, you, to do this successfully, look, you could do this on your own, but to do this in the most meaningful, to get the most out of it, we got to be a team, 100%. But, it, but it's like, because it says you nothing if you're not part of the big, um, like if you're not part of getting to the light, you know, you, if you're not, Working, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I should read the yeah. chat. <laughs> no, I, but but not hundred percent. Being as part of a community and a group of people connecting to this is definitely, you, you know, the, the the saying goes. It says in Hayom Yom that when two people come together, it's two divine souls against one animal soul. So divine souls accumulate together. Animal souls don't. Yeah. Which means when we get together, we are, our, our, our uh, material lust is weaker. Our spiritual strength is stronger. Our spiritual intensity is stronger, 100%. Okay. 100%. Now, the, the, the only thing is, though, if you were to ask, Let's say we were all to employ this meditation and we were all to experience this spiritual passion. And we were to ask all five of us, five of us or six of us, how many of us are here? All mm -hmm. five of us, I'm, I'm not good at counting. <laughs> Unless it's in multiples of 18. 
Um, if you were to ask all five of us, what did that feel like? You're not going to get the same answer because at the end of the day, our, our, our psych, our psych, our, sorry, our human psych is different. Our psychology is different. Our human uh, dispositions, our personalities are different. We're different people. And take a look on what he says on 645, because I find this to be very interesting. The author is an expert teacher, yet has the vulnerability to say, I, I just can't explain this anymore. Uh, take a look at the second paragraph, please, on 645. But this experience can't be explained properly in writing. Only every man with a wise and understanding heart who thinks about the matter and, and, and delves deeply to connect his da'as and bina to God, his faculty of um, app applying information and his faculty of understanding information, right, using those to connect to God, will find goodness and light hidden in his intellectual soul. And each individual according to his own capabilities, because like the Zohar says, one person will be moved in one way and someone else in another. So if we want to experience this love, we have to put in the effort. It's hard for him to tell us what we're gonna feel because the quality of this love is so distinct and so deep that we're all going to experience it differently. Now, to truly experience this love that we're describing here, there's a prerequisite. Did I pronounce that right? There's a prerequisite that's, there we go, that's necessary. And that prerequisite is, like Bob Newhart used to say, stop it. The prerequisite is to remove sin. Right, just to stop it. Take a look and you'll soon see what. Hey, Josh, Brad. Sure, the last bullet of the page, right on top of section. After having the necessity not to sin, songs, so that there will not be a situation of your sins where a separation between you and God, etc. God forbid. What happens when we sin, and we've discussed this in the past, is for, you know, in the, the Tanya rarely talks about punishments. The Tanya focuses a lot on consequences. There are other books in Judaism. There are other um, groups of Jews that focus a lot on punishments. But the Tanya's perspective focuses a lot on consequences. And throughout the book, we see how the author is afraid of sin, but not because of the punishment. Not because you do this, you go to hell, right? I was, I was once sitting on a plane and I was talking to this lady who was sitting next to me. She was an ex-Catholic. There is such a thing. So... <laughs> I said, what was your experience like? I, I said, I got to ask you a question. The yardstick thing, the ruler, is that real? Or is that just like in the, uh, you know, is that, is that just blowing, you know, social media and movies? Is that a real thing? So she said, if you're 
misbehaving, you get hit with the yardstick. And if you're really bad, the teacher writes your name on the board and you get sentenced to hell. <laughs> say, whoa. Um, okay, the reason why I thought of that is because the authors throughout Tanya and throughout many of his other writings, we see how he's afraid of sin, but he's not afraid of the punishment of sin. He's afraid of the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin, distance in a relationship with God, right? Think about a marriage. What's God, for, God forbid somebody who's unfaithful? What is wrong with being unfaithful? It's not the black eye. It's the distance that's being created, right? The black eye, that's nothing. The distance, that's a big problem. It's the same in our relationship with God. A punishment from God for sinning, okay, whatever, man, you know? Okay, you get sentenced to hell, you know, okay. But the distance that can be created, and as Isaiah describes in scripture, the, the prophet Isaiah, it creates some sort of wall, not between God and us, because from nothing can separate us from uh, God, but, but, but between us and God, from our perspective, there's this perceptual distance that is created. A desensitize, who could help me out here? Desensitization. There we go. I didn't have my diet coke in. I can't say it either. Okay, two out of five can't do it. Who else wants to give it a try? Desensitization. There we go. Okay, third time's a try. Okay. So in order to experience this love, we have to resensitize ourselves. And it starts with resolving, at least on some minute level, let me stop creating this wall. Let me stop creating this distance, not because of the black eye, but because of the relationship itself. Okay, that's a prerequisite to get the most out of this love. Now, the most important thing about love in any relationship, and particularly this love, because he spells it out quite clearly, is not the feeling, but the action it motivates. The most important thing about love is not the feeling itself, but the action it motivates. Take a look on 646, please. This is important. This might be the most important thing we might read in this entire book. I feel like I could say that every week, but we could definitely say it right now. <laughs> Take a look on 646. It's so important, by the way. Love is there to enhance relationships, not corrupt relationships. When love is about the experience, it becomes self-centered. It destroys the relationship. When love is about the motivation it leads to, it becomes selfless. It enhances the relationship. Let's read that inside in the author's own words. Now, top of 646, the bold paragraph. Now, the way in which this intense love inspires worship through Torah and mitzvah observance is indirect. It's only through the rebound experience of returning, which takes place after the feeling of fiery love, as stated in Sefer Yitzirah, one of the earliest Kabbalistic uh, books, if your heart runs, return to one. So uh, imagine we did this meditation in great depth. 
Imagine how we would feel. Imagine we would feel how the author told us we would feel. Inspired, spiritual, on fire, on cloud nine, we feel good. But it's all worth it if we come back to earth. If we don't come back to earth, it's just about our own gratification. And we're missing the point. The most, let me put it this way. This is going to sound extreme. Um, so forgive me. The most arrogant thing we can do is seek love. And it's worth it. If it makes us better people, if it makes us perform better, if it's going to lead us to serve, the most arrogant thing we could seek is love. And if we are, if it's motivating service, it's totally worth it. We call this in Kabbalistic lingo a ratso. Ratso means to run to God and then a shuv, a return to God. We run to God, but we got to come back. We got to come back home. In other words, if you really love God, we're not going to be just spiritual in the clouds. We're going to have our feet on the ground. We're going to do a mitzvah. We're going to study Torah. I'll give you a, a quick example to illustrate this idea. Rabbi, Rabbi Shalom Dover of Lubavitch, one of the, lived about 150 years ago, delivered a Hasidic teaching a fiery, passionate Hasidic teaching, a discourse about love, about passion, about the soul, similar concepts that overlap with what we're learning now. And afterwards, his son was looking for him. It was a Friday night uh, teaching. He would deliver these types of teachings every Friday night. That's what he was accustomed to doing. And his son was looking for him. They couldn't find him. He finally found him in his study. And he sees him studying Talmud. And Talmud, in some ways, is kind of the opposite of Hasidic teaching. Because it's technical. It's legal. It can often seem dry. It can be very nuanced. Um, especially when you're studying Jewish law. It could be very nitpicky. And his son was trying to wrap his head around what just went on. You were just getting delivering this inspired, elevated uh, teaching, spiritual teaching, and now you're studying something technical and legal and, and tedious. And his father responds, yeah, that's the point. We gotta come down back to earth. Pull out the Talmud and study, study God's Torah, or pull out the parathel, or whatever it is, and do a mitzvah, study the Torah. That the whole point of the passion is to motivate something practical. There's a line from Pirkei Avos, the ethics of our fathers, which may sound familiar. Um, take a look on 647. The third bold paragraph. And this will help us to clarify the teaching of our sages of blessed memory. This is a quote from Ethics of Our Fathers from Pirkei Avos. Without your consent, you live. Without your consent, you die. The soul first wants to stay in heaven, doesn't want to live. Oh, we don't get a choice. It's not about us. It's about our mission. 
And then the soul says, oh, wait a minute. I like it here. I love doing my mission. It's not about you. You got to go back to your maker. Either way we look at it, it's, it's not about us. Love is very much about us. And it's totally worth it to be self-centered and arrogant if it's going to make us selfless people. Right? And by the way, um, most of us, or maybe even all of us, should be familiar with the Lecha Dodi prayer that we say Friday night. Or at least I've heard of it, right? The Lecha Dodi prayer, where we, see, where we welcome the Shabbat bride. We compare Shabbat to a bride, and we usher in the Shabbat. It's a beautiful way to usher in Shabbat. Right? And we say, come, my beloved, and greet the bride, the Kala. That's how you say bride in Hebrew, Kala. Basically saying Shabbat, we have this romantic relationship with Shabbat, we're the groom, and come, come in, make yourself comfortable. But there's a, again, like we said, everything in Judaism has multiple layers of understanding. And there's a deeper meaning here. The Hebrew word for bride, Kala, also means a consuming passion. And we're saying that, yes, you have this consuming passion. But my bride, my passion, come. Come back. Yes, you're in heaven. Yes, you have this high. This elevated spiritual high that we've been describing. Come back. Come back to earth. Right? We mentioned this last week. Right in, in the first paragraph of the Shema, where it says you should love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Afterwards, it says, and these things should be upon your heart. Study the Torah, do the mitzvahs, etc. Passion needs to lead to action. It's then worth it. That's the whole purpose. That is the bottom line. That is the bottom line. That's, that is ultimately what we're here for. In other words, passion is simply just a tool, an engine. Again, we're going full circle because earlier we were talking about the significance of action. We're now talking about the significance of passion for a long time. And now we're going full circle, connecting the loop. The whole purpose of the passion is to motivate the action, to make the action more meaningful, more genuine, more real. But if it doesn't lead to action, it's not about God anymore, it's about us. That's my story, I'm sticking to it. <laughs>